Hello, this is Pastor Ryan Brown, and you are listening to the Aroma of Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Fostoria Baptist Church. Let's get started. Our scripture reading for this Sunday is Hebrews 3, 7 through 4, 11. Now, this passage is looking at Psalm 95 and using Psalm 95 to interpret things that happened in, the, in Numbers, in the wilderness wanderings and particularly looking at the rest that God had prepared. And the author of Hebrews is clear that the rest was prepared from the beginning of the world, and that it still remains today. Otherwise, David in Psalm 95 wouldn't be talking about today, if you hear his voice, harden the heart, do not harden your hearts, and talking about rest in this type of a manner. Now, it is significant when we get to that particular part in Hebrews 4, 8, that the name Jesus and the name Joshua are the same name. So when you read in Hebrews 4, 8, if, or if Jesus had given them rest, it is appropriate and proper to actually be talking about for if Joshua, the Old Testament Jesus, not the New Testament Jesus, if Joshua had given them rest, then they would not have afterwards spoken of another day. And so the, the main point that we're looking at is that there remains in the future a rest for the people of God that we experience parts and foretastes of now, including then the element of ceasing from our works because our acceptance is in Jesus Christ alone. And so the text reads, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today, if ye will hear his voice, Harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore I was grieved with that generation, and said, They do always err in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest." Take heed, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end." While it is said, today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world." For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. 
and in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief, again he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time, as it is said, Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus, that is, Joshua, had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. with me to Matthew chapter 11. We will be looking today at verses 28 through 30. And last week we did look at Matthew 11 verses 20 through 30. And we kind of got a glimpse of the whole of this passage uh, within this section of Matthew which is showing that most of the Pharisees, most of the generations including the Pharisees are rejecting Jesus there are just little glimmers of people who are accepting him. There is then those who God has revealed and called the humble, not the self-sufficient proud. And after directly thanking the Lord that such is the case, Jesus then enters into these words. The invitation to those who are weary, heavy laden where we read this. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Father, I ask that you would continue to guide us in this service and that your Holy Spirit, who is always with us, would be working in our hearts, directing us unto you, directing us to find rest, not in anything that we do, but in what Christ has done. May the tenor, the theme, the tone of our songs and thinking today be joyful Rejoicing in this reality, let that then compel us and drive us to serve you, to live for you, and devote our entire selves to you. And I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. We have an expression. No rest for the weary. Where we seem to get at this idea that those who are beginning to be exhausted, getting to be burnt out and weary, 
can't stop but have to just keep going. Maybe because that's something we think is good, or maybe because it's just uncontrollable. Just as soon as you start to calm down, something pops up. Something breaks. Someone gets hurt. And so the work continues on. Our evening series in Ecclesiastes is touching on this very fact about human activity and how life seems to be filled with all sorts of human activity and the preacher there wonders where is it all heading. It would seem that we have good reason to think that weariness, exhaustion, restlessness is the norm for humanity. And so when Jesus, in these words, twice promises rest, it comes as a welcome surprise. It comes as a chance for a sigh of relief for those who are weary with the work and those who are weary with sin and weary with trying to carry on in righteousness. Let us not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we will reap if we faint not. The basic argument that our text makes today is that we need to come to Christ for the rest that only he, the gentle and lowly one, can give. And we spent last week, and we finished our sermon last week by going line by line through this passage. And we're going to look at each line of this passage again, but we're going to take the opportunity, since we looked line by line, to do things a little bit differently, and put this in a, a, a different order of understanding, which also allows me to read the text over and over and over to you to find those spots that are relevant to what we're looking at. So we're going to look at the means to rest, the promise of rest, and the ground of rest today. And we start with the means to rest. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Didn't take us long to find the first place where Jesus tells us the way in which we attain and reach for rest. It's the very beginning. He says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. And as we looked at last week, it is significant that he's not telling us to come to religion. He's not telling us to come to a particular standard of living and righteousness. All of these things are good, right? He's not telling us that. It's not to a church. It's not to a political party. It's not to any other thing. It's not to the best self-help program you can think of. But come to him. Jesus personally is inviting us to himself and not to anything else because he is the one that will be providing this rest. It's also, though, significant in this regard that he invites those who are weary and heavy laden to come to him. You'd think you'd want to unburden yourself first, then come to him. But he wants the burdened to come 
The burden is what qualifies us to come. And this actually comes at the fundamental difference between Christianity and any other religion. In fact, it comes at two fundamental differences between Christianity and any other religion. Every other religion will tell you, go and do. Go from here. Here are the things that you must do. But Jesus, in his beckoning, is come, it's done. Christ has already paid the price. Christ is the one who actually works in this way. Come, the price has been paid. But that fundamental difference actually captures another difference about Christianity versus other religions, and that is an understanding of humanity. The point behind go and do is that there's something in us that can do right things. There's some element in which we can accomplish something that we could unburden ourselves. But the basic tenet of Christianity is that we cannot do anything on our own. That we are so broken to our very core that any good we do is still nothing. Yes, God made us in his image. God made us beautiful, but we messed ourselves up. We are sinners, weary and heavy laden, unable to take off our burdens. And that actually is the whole point of verses 20 to 30 as a whole. This passage is sanctioned in looking at the pride of the cities who are rejecting Jesus and how they think they have it, so they don't need to repent. They don't need to turn from their own selves. Capernaum thinks that they will be exalted unto heaven, so they don't repent at Jesus' mighty works. The wise and the prudent are not who have the truth of the kingdom and the beauty of the gospel revealed, but rather unto babes, verse 25. And so it continues to be true. There's a couple bad expressions that this passage kind of works through and thinks about. There's a principle that is stated sometimes that God helps those who help themselves. That's blatantly anti-biblical and anti-gospel. God helps those who recognize that they cannot help themselves. And so stop trying to prevent and get rid of our sin and get rid of our burdens on our own, but come to him with open hands in need because we need a metaphorical open heart surgery that we cannot do ourselves but need him to do. As the old hymn says, Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. So don't wait. Don't try to accomplish certain things first. You won't get better unless you first come to Jesus, weary and heavy laden, burdened by your sin, burdened by the fall, 
coming to his finished work on the cross, where he offers true forgiveness and salvation to all who believe on him. But there is another place in which the means to rest is given. So if we keep reading, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. To learn of him is a simple enough expression to think through. It's the core of what it means to be a disciple. A disciple would follow a particular teacher, a particular master, in order to hear from them and hear their teaching and understand more of how they live and think. But it starts first by showing that the invitation to come is an invitation for a yoke, taking Jesus' yoke upon us. If you're on a farm, you might yoke together some oxen. And the point in yoking the oxen together is so that they can move the farm equipment. We don't typically use oxen now. We have engines and motors. But the oxen push through and work together in that type of a way. So it's a call to service, but I'd say it goes even further. Because when we start thinking about the yoke and how it's used in scripture, it's almost always slavery. Since we're looking at Galatians in Sunday school, let's turn to Galatians 5. But as we turn there, let me also see how this is in Acts 15.10. Now therefore, why do you try to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. In that passage talking about the yoke of following the law and circumcision, putting it upon the neck, putting them under slavery to that law, it's too much. It's what the disciples are saying. 1 Timothy 6.1, Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their masters worthy of all honor. They're very literally looking at true bondservants and slaves at that time, calling it a yoke they have with their masters. And then in Galatians 5.1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. The call to come to him to find rest is a call to submit to him as a slave, to surrender our very self to him such that there's nothing else that we have keeping to ourselves. Complete obedience and submission to him. And as Galatians 5, 1 teaches, True freedom is found only in bondage to Christ. And as Matthew 11 teaches, true rest 
is only actually found in his service. Giving ourselves to him. Which then leads us to the promise of rest. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So who who receives the rest? It's here again, the weary and heavy laden. If we think that there is no rest for the weary, here we have that there is. Those who labor, those who are heavy laden, those who are weary can indeed have rest. But that leads to the question, what does it mean to labor, to be weary, to be burdened within this passage? The word is used again in verse 30 to say that our burden, that Jesus' burden is light. And the burdens, what they are, color the type of rest that Jesus is talking about. A burden, a burden to carry, is a task to perform. Something that must be done in some way or another. The word is used again in Matthew in chapter 23, 4. This is beginning of, of Jesus' discourse to pronounce woe upon the Pharisees. He'll pronounce seven woes upon them, warning them of judgment that is to come. But before he does, he begins to describe what they're doing. And he says in Matthew 23, 4, for they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Verse 3, it's clear what he's talking about a little bit more when it says, All therefore, whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do, but do ye not after their works, for they say and do not. So when it's talking about the burdens, it's talking about what types of things they say is necessary to attain the righteousness of the law. And that's even on display in chapter 12, which we will look at in a couple weeks, in regard to how Jesus and the Pharisees interpret the Sabbath and what observing the Sabbath actually means. What type of a burden is it truly? And if we only had Matthew, this is probably all we could say about what this rest is. And it would be enough. Because it's saying that the burden that we have to be righteous, to be pleasing to God, is not the burden of the Pharisees. It's more of a restful burden because Christ has already done the work. It requires a certain ceasing from our works of trying to please God. But I don't think it's all that we should say. Because the reality of the situation is rest is an important biblical theme. As the author of Hebrews even pulls out with quoting Psalm 95, looking at Genesis 2-3, and looking even at how Joshua didn't give final rest to the people of Israel. In Genesis 2, 
God rests on the seventh day. He blesses it. And then after that, he jumps into Genesis and he puts man in the garden. And then a little later on, he puts man in the garden. But this time, the word isn't just puts, but the word is rests. He rests man in the garden so that this Eden bliss that we once had is a wonderful place of rest. As John Salehammer points out, by using a different word for put here, the author suggests that the man was placed in the garden where he could rest, be safe, and have fellowship with God. And then that Eden blessing, that Eden hope that is lost in Genesis 3 as the toil comes in instead, where the relationship is broken, that is the hope to which we continually aspire to as the rest is introduced. And we ultimately know that the rest is still future at the time that Jesus is talking because it's used in the later prophets, including twice in Jeremiah, both of which are mentioned and alluded to in this passage. Which brings us to Jeremiah 31:25. Part of the book of comfort, Jeremiah 31, 25, is at the end of a vision that Jeremiah had while he was asleep. And upon that he awoke, and God explains what he saw, and explains it in light of this is what will happen when the new covenant comes. But at the end of the vision, Jeremiah 31, 25, for I have satiated the weary soul and I have replenished every sorrowful soul. Or as the NIV captures, I will refresh the weary and satisfy the faint. Where part of the restoration the new covenant brings is a rest, a rest for the weary. Just as Jesus here promises rest to the weary. This end times hope is even more clear in Jeremiah 6:16. 6, Jeremiah 6 is a statement of judgment of coming destruction to Israel. And it describes the fact that they could have prevented it by going to the old ways by returning properly to following after God. And in so doing, this is the warning that God had given to them and the admonition and hope. Jeremiah 6, 16. Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways, and ask for the old paths. Where is the good way? And walk therein. And ye shall find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk therein. They had the chance of not going into exile. They chose to sin instead, instead of finding the good and old paths, 
where they would have found rest for their souls. Then in Matthew 11, Jesus tells everyone, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And so he continues to push us, not just to think about rest in one sense, but also to think about it as an end-time situation of ending both exiles. Man's exile from the garden, from that rest, and Israel's exile from the land. To doing away with the sin by Christ taking it upon himself. And to use the language then of the author of Hebrews in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, the rest that is promised is a rest that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God because it's promised in Jeremiah, because it's promised here. A return to Eden that is not all future, since we certainly experience access to God in prayer, more intimate than any would have known prior to Jesus. And also that we cease from works as they did, as he did from this. That we don't have to work and work and work trying to provide for a righteous living, but get to stop as God did in creation, as Jesus did when he declares it was finished and gave up the ghost and rose again victorious, resting from his works. But I think there's still a pretty burning question. This beautiful promise of rest sounds wonderful, especially in a restless world. But how is it bondage to Christ that creates this type of rest and works this type of rest within us? The answer is that the rest is grounded and rooted in the character of Jesus Christ. Which then is our third point, the ground for rest. The first thing that comes to your mind when the name Christ is introduced will determine how much you experience the reality that is yours of this rest. At one level, we generally know that Christ died for us and so we have access to the Father and we have this beautiful rest. But sometimes when we view our sin, we start to wonder if there's a point in which he regretted what he did. Maybe he doesn't actually love us anymore but simply tolerate us because he has to. And in our theological thinking, we know that, and so probably would never give voice to it. But that doesn't mean we don't feel it. And we don't wonder if that's the case. Is there really rest? But there is. 
because it's not grounded on who we are, but who he is. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Last week we said that this was the reason why Jesus gets up in the morning which is a way of getting at the idea that he is describing here not just any old thing, but who he is in his heart. And who he is in his heart is who he is in, at bottom. Because the heart is the command center in biblical languages. Not just the seat of the emotions or a heart, an organ that pumps blood, but the command center the very internal aspect of who we are. So we think about how the wonderful creator and the one who will judge the entire world could actually love instead of just tolerate us. The answer is that though he is the judge of the whole earth, he is not at bottom judgmental. Though he is the glorious creator, he is not at bottom distant or unapproachable. But instead, Jesus tells us that he is meek and lowly in heart. To be meek is to be gentle. It is to be humble. In particular, it is to be unassuming about one's own self-importance. And so kind of selfless in the way that we live towards others. And Jesus is saying he is meek. He is gentle. He isn't overly interested in his own self-importance, but pouring himself out for others. And then to be lowly, that has to do with being humble. But not in the same sense as meek. It has to be doing humble in status. As James 1.9 says, the brother of low degree is to exalt in his, or rejoice in his exaltation. And certainly, Jesus is an odd, uh, odd candidate for being lowly in heart. God in the flesh, God with us, the one who will save his people from their sins, the judge of the whole world, the messianic son of David, the son of man who will reign over all things forever. And did we mention God in the flesh? God the son, lowly in status, a one of low degree? How? can only be so because of his meekness. Because of his choice to be not interested in his own self-importance, but pouring himself out for others. And so making himself lowly in status, making himself approachable, near, becoming like the children of Abraham in flesh and blood, so as to help the children of Abraham and indeed all the children of Adam. 
For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. 2 Corinthians 8.9 Or in another famous passage in Philippians 2, who being in the form of God did not think equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. These things. Jesus making himself of lowly status in his humanity and then in his death. He attributes this meekness and lowliness to be who he is at bottom, who he is at the core of himself. And so he does more than tolerate us. He truly does accept us. He really does bring us into permanent friendship because he doesn't have hoops to jump through. He doesn't desire to be distant. He desires to help those who are lowly. So he associates with the lowly. He associates with me and you. And that begins to answer some of our questions about how rest comes through Jesus. But it's still kind of strange to think, how does bondage to him? How is it that this true rest comes in submission to him in all things? Let's read again. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. There in verse 30, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This gives us reason to think why the rest for the weary we long comes in bondage to Christ. And it's significant to think that in most places, the idea of easy in this word would be translated kind. It's not just saying anything about the yoke being easy. It's that the yoke is kind because it's rooted in the very character of Jesus. Who does not delight in placing burdens upon us just because he can. Just wants to place as many burdens as we possibly can upon us and see how much we can shoulder till our backs break. That's the old master. That's sin. That's the devil. His yoke is kind. It's rooted in the fact that he is gentle and lowly. Now, don't be deceived. This doesn't mean life is a, a butterflies and roses. The persecution promised in chapter 10, the imprisonment of John in Matthew 11, 2-3, the fact that the Pharisees are about to plot to see how to kill Jesus in Matthew 12, 14, all speak to the fact that the yoke being easy does not mean life is easy. But it does mean that the burden 
that we have to carry, the bondage to Jesus is rooted in his own kindness. And even if it is more than we can handle like it was for Paul in 2 Corinthians 1, it is designed for our good. To make us like Christ, to make us depend upon Christ, and to work it out for our eternal salvation. And so rest is found in taking on Jesus' yoke because he is meek and lowly, and thus his yoke is kind, intended for the benefit of his people. Intended to bring it about that we would have eternal salvation. Those who have accepted this in one sense and those who haven't, today accept the fact that true rest comes in Jesus' death. That true rest comes in coming to him and accepting his yoke of slavery because he is worth it and he is kind. He has paid it all on the cross, so all we have to do is come with open hand and need. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Father, we ask that you would help us as we live these and rejoice in this reality. Help us to be exulting in you today and exalting you to the right place. Help us as we continue on from here not to forget these truths, not to be restless about whether we are truly accepted, but to rest in you in the fact that you are meek, lowly, and work all things out for our good. And I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. for listening to Aroma for Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Fostoria Baptist Church. Do you remember 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16? For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? <laughs>